Hello and welcome to Through the Undertow. I'm your host, Nicole Lowell. This week's episode is Coaching Isn't Just for Sports. So come join us as we wade through the undertow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Through the Undertow, the podcast geared towards parents and caregivers raising children who are victims of child sexual abuse. I'm Nicole Lowell, your host. As always, none of the advice given can take the place of your own medical and legal professionals but we hope you're able to gain some additional knowledge in your quest to help your children. Each episode page on our website, as well as the show notes, will list any trigger or content warnings, so please take a look if you need that info. Now, with that, come join me as we wade through the undertow. Thank you so much for joining us today on Through the Undertow. We have guest Marissa Cohen with us today. To reiterate, we provide trigger warnings and content warnings on each episode page on our website that can be found at www.throughtheundertow.com. That's www.throughtheundertow.com. You can see the latest episodes on our homepage, or as time goes on, click on the episode link to take you to a more comprehensive list. So thank you, Marissa, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, I actually found out about you through the support group for parents of sexually abused children on Facebook. But after finding out about you and reaching out to you and then doing even more research, I've just found so much more about you. It's been amazing. So you had your own personal journey with abuse, and then you took that and you decided that you wanted to help as many people as possible through their journey. And you created a book. So can you tell me about the books that you created? Sure. So my first book and my book series is called the Breaking Through the Silence series. And in those books, I write people's stories of overcoming abuse, right? So the first book is my stories plus 19 other survivors, male, female, transgender, LGBTQ, who have suffered through and overcome abuse. And what I really wanted to focus on was the healing aspect because a lot of people who have been abused just don't know what to do. And they think, you know, if I let it go or if I stop thinking about it, it'll just go away. And unfortunately, that's never the case. It always finds its way back up and it always creeps its way into your body somehow and manifests in depression and anxiety or eating disorders or substance abuse. And it's really dangerous to not address the abuse and to not work through it. So I wanted to create a manual for survivors to use to help them through their abuse by getting ideas from other people who have experienced it and giving them like relatable people and stories to know that they're not alone. And it was a number one Amazon bestseller and I won an international book award for it. And I realized that that it was so important and it was so common and nobody really talked about it. So I've created the series, the Breaking Through the Silence series, where I highlight different areas. So for example, I have a Breaking Through the Silence hashtag men too, specifically talking about male sexual assault and how males are impacted as survivors as well. But the Me Too movement missed men. And I didn't think that that was fair. And I'm currently working on two more Breaking Through the Silence books. One is about military sexual assault following the Vanessa Guillen debacle, the scandal, and various others. I mean, that's not a one and done situation. There are thousands upon thousands of military members who I've worked with personally who have experienced sexual assault or sexual harassment and misconduct in the military. And it's never addressed. The military is 
immediate reaction is to brush it under the rug and to transfer the survivor and hope that it never happens again. But that isn't true. Um, and then the other book that I'm working on is about the wrestling community because the wrestling industry has a huge, they had a huge scandal last summer about the sexual harassment in the locker rooms and the sexual assault that happens throughout the wrestling industry. And so we're, we're talking about that as well, too. And I think it's interesting that if we don't address it at the child level, if we don't create healthy boundaries and respect for our own bodies and respect for other people's bodies and respect for choices, then we end up with this epidemic that sort of bleeds over. It's not just children that it's going on with, but it's a societal issue now. And part of that, I think, is huge in the sense of we didn't start where we should have. We should be telling our children, you don't behave this way towards other people and telling our children also, this is your body and you get to make choices for it. Right. And to be very honest, I think that starts at the parental level, especially around the holidays when you have a lot of family around. One of the things that we see a lot is that for Christmas, for example, or Hanukkah, the whole family gets together and children are basically forced to go give every family member a hug and a kiss, whether they're comfortable or not. And even though that's such a small moment in the grand scheme of their lives, if they are not comfortable giving somebody a hug or a kiss by enforcing that they do that, you're taking away the control of their body. And so that's training them that they have to give affection to people, whether they like it or not. And that sets a really poor precedent in terms of viewing your body as something you're in control of versus an object. And it's also teaching them that they should ignore their own personal signals that that's not the important thing, that they're less than. And I think that that's something that we all have to start recognizing, that our children are not less than. They're not less than grandma. They're not less than auntie whoever that ha they haven't seen in three years or maybe never. And they have to all of a sudden give them a hug when they don't know who they are. And I think that, sure, we can say that, well, we know that they're family, but the other reality is how often is it family members that do things to children? A huge percentage. Huge. Yeah. Now, I have to say that I really found it interesting and amazing that you decided to do the men's stories as well for the Breaking Through the Silence. I think that there's not enough talk about that. We like to tell men that they're not macho if something happened to them like that, or that it must have been consensual because don't we all, you know, in terms of men, don't we all want sex? And I think those are really negative messages to send to them as well. So they might even be less inclined to report than women based on the reactions that they get from everybody, from society to them. Absolutely. Male sexual assault is the lowest reported crime historically for those reasons that you just said and many more. I mean, their sexualities are questioned. Their masculinity is questioned. They're doubted and not believed because like you said, what man doesn't want to have sex? But if you think about it, they make a ton of jokes about this in movies and in the media, but why don't men commit crimes? Because they're afraid of going to jail. Why are they afraid of going to jail? Because you don't drop the soap in the jail shower and you're going to get raped in jail. And so they make this big joke about it, but it's not a joke. It's not a joke. And when it's mishandled the way that it is, where people question their sexuality or question their masculinity, it creates this horrible need to keep it inside because they don't want to have to answer those questions. And I think that that was a huge part of the Me Too movement that was missed. 
men are a part of our community too. Men aren't the only offenders. Women are also offenders and anybody can be an offender just like anybody can be a survivor. I was very disappointed to see during the whole Me Too blow up, men were trying to come forward and say Me Too. And I just saw women bashing them. This isn't for you. This isn't your movement. This is a women's movement. Get out of here. We're all one survivor community and we all need each other. First of all, to make global changes. We need each other, but we we also need each other to rely on. You know, we need people, we need resources, we need relatability. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're just staying individuals locked in our own little baskets. We shouldn't be. Absolutely. And I think that something that a lot of people might not know is that statistically, offenders that offend against men actually will statistically offend more frequently than those that offend against women. And I think that that's like, without having that piece of information, without knowing that, you know, that's kind of scary, you know, not to take anything away from obviously from what happens to women or even children. But it's like when it comes to boys and men, if an offender had a crime against them, statistically speaking, they have a higher likelihood of going out and doing that behavior again. And I think that we need to know that and be able to protect those members of our society. Absolutely. Statistically, boys are more impacted and more offended against than than men. But like you said, I mean, that doesn't make a difference. It really doesn't. Boys and men are both a valuable part of our community. And I think that they need to be protected as well. Absolutely. Now, as I said, I learned about you through the Facebook group, the support group on Facebook, but I learned about you as a healing coach. So can you tell me a little bit about that? So having gone through my own experiences and having to try all the wrong methods of healing before I found the right ones, I learned a lot on my journey from both my experiences and from talking to other people who have also experienced abuse. And the more I spoke to survivors who sought out therapy or, you know, forms of CBT and and inpatient, outpatient therapies, the more I realized that that industry really isn't ready for us. They're not because nobody is really trained on abuse unless they've experienced it. Counselors will often, and this makes me sick, counselors and therapists will often tell people, it's okay, just get over it. Or it's really not that big of a deal. It's over. You're out. So move on. And that's not what abuse does to you. It's not one of those, oh, okay, well, I'm out. So now I'm safe. There's a ton of aftermath and psychological baggage that comes with being a survivor of abuse and sexual assault. And unless it's handled the right way, you could be re-victimizing people and putting people in more danger. And that's not to say that the psychological industry or therapists, all of them are awful, but it's better to be well-versed in one area. So for me, my healing coaching is all about abuse and sexual assault because that is my only focus. That is the only thing that I care about in terms of what I want to help people overcome. And so for that, I have developed... Methods. I have a three-step methodology, a three-step philosophy to healing called the Healing for Emotional Abuse Philosophy, where I teach people how to release, build resilience, and then rebuild their lives after abuse. And I have worked with therapists and people of all different backgrounds to put together different activities and confidence-building exercises to work specifically on overcoming abuse. And you also have the Rue approach. Is that also part of your system? It 
is. So the Rue approach was developed last year and it was a five-step approach to healing. And I took that approach and finagled it a little bit and recreated it into the healing from emotional abuse philosophy. So it's similar, but there are a few changes, a few updates, but the Rue approach is a still a big part of my method as well. And so now you kind of put it out there that you could potentially be an alternative to traditional therapy and that you're geared specifically towards people that have experienced some form of sexual abuse. Correct. Can you tell me, I noticed a couple of things on your Facebook page. Can you tell me about the DARVO acronym? So DARVO is looking for red flags from abusers. It's things that abusers and toxic people and narcissists will do to emotionally abuse you that you might not realize at the time. So DARVO, D is deny. The offender is going to deny the abuse, not take accountability, and generally gaslight you into feeling that what they did was your fault or that you asked for this somehow and their action is a response to something you did, which isn't true. It's just a denial of accountability and responsibility. A, D-A, is attack. The offender attacks the credibility of the victim. Again, gaslighting. It makes you question your sanity. It makes you feel crazy for feeling the, the ways you do or seeing the things that you've seen from their behavior, right? So if they're getting super defensive when you bring up cheating, for example, and they get really, really defensive and they attack you and say, well, if that's what you think, then you're probably cheating on me. And it's turning it around and making you feel like what you're seeing isn't really there. And then RVO and DARVO is they reverse victim and offender. So it's they will take what they're doing and blame you and twist it around and finagle it to make you think that what you're seeing of them, you're doing, or that it doesn't really exist. And then it makes you feel guilty and shameful and apologetic. And they have now created more of a control against you and basically have you locked in this box of confused and control and manipulated. And it's all kind of their way of trying to get control over you and over your actions and beliefs and thoughts. Right. So the whole purpose of abuse is to have power and control over somebody. And so everything that they do, all of their actions somehow give them power and control over you or manipulate you so that they have that authority over you. I think sometimes people forget that aspect of it, that abuse is not about how you look, what you're wearing. Oftentimes, it's not even about how old you are, even though it's for us through the undershow, we talk about child abuse. I mean, child sexual abuse, it's not always because they're a child. Sometimes it's that's what's available. And they're the most silent victims. They don't speak. You can manipulate them the easiest. So they're the easiest targets. But it's not necessarily about a person specifically being sexually attracted to children. And I think that people oftentimes don't obviously have a hard time understanding that. And as we should, but I mean, I think we need to understand that. Abuse is never about, well, if you just wore something different, if you just looked a different way, then you wouldn't be a target. Absolutely. It's about a vulnerable population that they can maintain control over, as you said. 
There's no sexual urge in, in sexual assault. It's all about finding a vulnerable target that you can manipulate. So a lot of times with children who have been sexually assaulted, it is a family member and they say, your parents will never believe you. If you tell on me, I'm going to kill your family. And those for an adult might be an empty threat, right? If somebody were to hurt me and say, I'm going to kill your family, I'd say, try me. But a child who their entire foundation for their relationship with their family is based on attachment and abandonment, right? They don't want to be abandoned. They don't want to feel betrayed by their family, but they're also attached you know, to their family. That's a terrifying thing to say to somebody. And that's all about authority, power, and control. Yeah. Now, you also have written the five ways that we excuse abuse. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So there are a lot of different ways that we excuse abuse, because we are programmed to want love and connection. One of our biggest needs in life is feeling loved and connected to people. We're social creatures. So what we'll find with people who are in abusive relationships or children who are being abused by a family member is that they'll rationalize what's happening or justify what's happening to them to protect the person who's hurting them because they love them and want to feel connected, especially with children and families. So the first one is they're not like this all the time and they make up a ton of excuses. For adults, we look more at, oh, well, they're just stressed at work and they're just drinking a lot, but they're not like this ever. It's just, it's a really hard time for them. And for kids, I mean, they won't even talk about it. It's just stress from work. Nobody is perfect thinking that the behavior is okay because maybe they're just going through something or it's just one of their flaws, but I've learned to love and accept it because I love them and they're a good person except for when they do these horrible things to me. And then going back to Darvo, thinking that they deserve it, thinking that the survivor deserves to be treated that way because of a behavior or a thing that they have done that the abuser has convinced them that they did wrong. And the last one is that they said they missed me or they said that they loved me and they couldn't live without me anymore. And, you know, what had happened was just kind of a mistake or kind of it was a situation, but it, it wasn't them. And they need me to be a part of their life. They need me to be with them and, you know, whatever they have to do to justify keeping that person, keeping the survivor close to the abuser. That's how the survivor will then rationalize continuing the abuse and allowing that person back in their life. And do you think, I kind of feel like, especially when it comes to children, that sometimes that rationalization is almost needed for them in the sense of if they're in a situation, especially where it's like a family member that's doing this and they can't get out of it and maybe they have been threatened or just put in a position where they don't feel like they can say anything. But then on top of that, it's like, how do I get through this continuing to happen to me. And it's almost like they have to rationalize it into this normal behavior so that when it continues to happen to them, you know, does that make sense to help them like be able to deal with it mentally and emotionally in the moment and then afterwards? I kind of feel like that's something that children potentially go through when they're in this particular situation. So what I've learned from working with children or adults who are abused as children at the point that they're being abused, they don't really understand it. And because the education system doesn't ever address sexual abuse at all, especially as children, they don't have the words to express. They don't know how to verbalize what's happening. They are just almost like a secular part of this situation, kind of just like left 
to fend for themselves and not because the parents aren't available or because teachers don't see it, you know, or see a behavior shifts. It's just because they don't know how to verbalize it and they don't know how to express it. So what you'll end up seeing in kids is acting out. They won't express themselves. And I don't think it's because they rationalize it. I think it's because they don't understand. So you'll see red flags such as kids' grades just plummeting. That's a big tell about sexual abuse or changing friends abruptly or dropping out of clubs or, you know, not having interest in things that they used to have interest in or, you know, changing their style, eating disorders, things like that. Risky behaviors are a big one, especially in teenagers engaging in high risk behaviors such as drugs and promiscuity and alcohol abuse. Sure. Things like that. I also think that especially for younger kids, anxiety can be a telling factor that I mean, obviously, sometimes children just have anxiety. But if if there's a a really strong separation anxiety, or just unnatural anxiety that doesn't seem to like have a valid reason around certain situations, that could be an indication that something more is going on that you're not aware of. Absolutely. There's a lot of picking, if that makes sense, like picking at their hair or picking at their eyebrows or picking at their skin, things like that. that are little tells that, like you said, kind of pop up out of nowhere. It's something to just be aware of as a parent of a child who might be being sexually abused and having conversations about it with your kids at their level, you know, get on their level and talk to them at their maturity level, you might learn some horrible things that they've experienced, but at that point you can address them. There are also a lot of really great children's books that speak to children at their level. One of my friends just published one. I'll send you the title. I don't remember it off the top of my head. I think it was called I Consent. She's phenomenal. And she writes to children at their reading level so that they can understand and really conceptualize what consent is and what is and is not allowed from people in your life. And I think that's definitely a big thing. I think children don't always know. And again, I would go back to if you're dealing with a situation where it's a a family member, we don't talk about it. So we don't, it's not like our kids know this is, this behavior is inappropriate. This isn't allowed until someone talks to them about it. And then it could be that the abuse is over or whatever. I mean, or until they get so desperate that they're like, this hurts me. And I just need to tell you that it hurts me. And I know, at least for my own daughter, in one particular situation, she told me she went through years of abuse at the hands of her dad. And then later on, after that, a couple of years later, she told me about a different situation that had happened. She was visiting my family at the time. And she texted me that this horrible thing happened to her. And within that text, not once did she say, can you come get me? Can you remove me from the situation in any way? And that, you know, I didn't know about her dad at the time. I didn't find out until later, but I did find that to be very strange. And I think that that's interesting that, you know, children learn what they're taught essentially. And so if somebody gets a hold of them early enough and teaches them, this is uh, absolutely okay to do to you, then they might not like it, but they don't know that they can say anything to anybody else and anybody else will listen. And again, she spoke to me and said, this happened, but it was really more like, I just wanted you to know this happened and it was really bad for me. And I was the one that was like, whoa, hold up. You, 
what? Okay, we need to get you out of there. You're going to come back home to me. I think that children don't know what abuse is until we teach them. And, and I think that it would be better to teach them with words than to have something bad happen to them. And they learn it that way. Absolutely. They don't have, like you said, they don't have the language. They don't know what's right and what's wrong until we teach them. And I'm sure the education system isn't going to update itself in the next couple of years. So in order to keep our kids safe, the best thing to do is good touch, bad touch. And using books that are written by people who know how to have this conversation so that you're not, as a parent, uncomfortable having the conversation. Because what do you say? I mean, if your father touches you here or your mother touches you here, I mean, that's so uncomfortable. I don't have kids. And that is an uncomfortable conversation to me to have with another adult. So using books and using language and videos and dolls, if somebody touches you here, that's not okay. You're allowed to say no. And if they say something to you, if they if they threaten you, right? If they say, I'm going to kill your parents, they will not kill us. They will not do it. You come tell me right away. You have nothing to be afraid of. You will not get in trouble. This is not your fault. Anything you can do to teach them that their body is theirs and so that you don't have to go through it and then go backwards to then build them up. You know, you want to get there ahead of time, teach them what's okay and not okay. And that if they are in danger or if they are uncomfortable, say, come get me or make a password, a code word. You know, I have a code word with, with one of my younger cousins that if anybody is making her uncomfortable at school, at home, at a friend's house, and she doesn't feel comfortable calling her mom, just text me pineapple and I will be there because pineapple wouldn't come up in conversation any other time. And I will be wherever she is and I will get her out of there and I will get her safe. And so maybe a system like that for children who are older than maybe six. I'm a huge fan of code words. I think code words work amazingly well in so many aspects of a child's life because there are other tools that you can use, but words you take with you everywhere you go. You don't have to worry about if you've got your backpack with you or if you've got, you know, flashcards with you or if you've got anything else with you, you can always say a word. And it's very clear to whomever, as long as you're making it clear to the people around you and you know what that word is for, it's I'm absolutely a fan of code words. I think they're very important. Especially with children, because then they don't have to express what's happening to them. They just know if I'm unsafe, I say this word, mom or dad comes and gets me and I'm safe. And I would also encourage uh, parents that you give your kids a code word and treat it like there used to be that back when I was growing up, the thing of like, you do the parents contract with the kids of like, if you're ever drunk, if you're ever whatever, you call me and we'll come pick you up. And we won't discuss it that, t- you know, at that moment, we'll wait and discuss it later. And I would encourage that that's what you do. You go, you get the person, you get your child out of that situation. And you wait a moment to give them time to sort of process what happens. And then you'd have that conversation afterwards, but don't try and have it before you go pick them up and don't try and have it once you get wherever they're at, you just get them out of the situation. And that way they know that you came and you rescued them and that they are safe with you. And I think that that's really important. Safety and comfort, I think, are the two most important things as a parent of a child who might have been sexually assaulted. So one of the things that I recommend for parents to do is when you go pick them up, then get them their favorite treat or stop at a gas station and get them a candy bar. Something that makes them know that not only are they safe, but they're comforted. And you don't have to have the difficult conversation at that moment because they're happy with their 
their chocolate bar, you know, and they know that they're okay and they can take some deep breaths and they can be okay, put on some music, you know, just make it as comfortable as possible because they may have just experienced something horrendous that they're not even capable of processing yet. That's awesome. I'd also like to say, though, one thing that I'd like to take it back to is the reading of the stories. What I would say as a parent is that I think it's important that you always read the stories together or with the other parent present in the room. And I say that because there are so many times when it is the other parent that is performing the abuse. And you want to make sure that whatever you know education you're giving your children in, you're safe, come to me if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, whatever, that there's no way for it to be miscommunicated later on with either parent. You know, they can't come back and say, well, she didn't really say that or she didn't really mean it. You know, if you reiterate this information to them over and over and over again, come to me if anybody makes you feel uncomfortable and I don't care who it is. Come to me and tell me. Use this code word if you need to, you know, but make sure that you are telling me whoever's making you uncomfortable and we will figure out a way to find out how they're making you uncomfortable and what's going on with that. And I also think that, again, to take it back to my daughter, the situation that she was in, When she told me what happened, I did. I asked her questions afterwards. It was like, did this person ever do anything before that? Or like, was there any lead up? You know, I was trying to get information from her and she talked about how they tickled her and it made her feel really uncomfortable, but she just didn't know why. And I think that's important as children, they can sometimes recognize that something's not really appropriate with their bodies, but they don't know why it's not appropriate. And I think we have to be willing to listen and say, okay, and maybe it was and maybe it wasn't appropriate. Who knows? But the reality is they should have the autonomy and authority to speak to their own bodies and what makes them comfortable and uncomfortable. Absolutely. And that's a really good point, addressing it from the get-go. That's really, you made a great point. Thank you. I feel like we can as a society say, let's watch out for all these tells of, you know, when they might be in trouble, and we can hopefully save them quickly as possible. But I also think that at some point as a society, we have to start being more comfortable talking about it. Because that's the way that we're going to actually prevent it from happening to begin with, as opposed to rescuing them once they're already in the situation. I mean, there's definitely something to be said about the how to be active after, but we're not a preventative society yet when it comes to this. We wait until we see a red flag of, oh, this person has probably already experienced, as opposed to why don't we get ahead of this, teach young children what is and is not appropriate, and teach young kids how to speak up for themselves and feel confident enough to stop you know, a situation before it goes too far. I mean, th- there was a statistic in 2016. I'm not sure. I have to look back and see if they've updated it. But 33% of people under 13 years old, so 12 and younger, have reported being in an abusive relationship under the age of 12. And 33% of children under the age of 13, so 12 and younger, have reported being abusive in relationships. So 66% of our kids have already experienced this by the time they're teenagers. That's not okay. And I do think that statistically, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about in a different episode is people and parents and whomever society doesn't recognize or realize how frequently perpetrators can actually be children themselves. And I think that um, that's something that we have to start 
recognizing and figuring out why that happens and potentially getting those people the help that they need as quickly as possible to hopefully make sure that it it doesn't happen to more kids. Children learn behavior from their environment. And that's not exclusively their parents, but it's their whole environment. So if you have, for example, a child that's in a team sport like football, and you have a coach who's abusive or loud and aggressive, even if that coach isn't touching the kids, but yelling at the kids and being you know, very aggressive towards the kids, that's now a behavior these children are learning. And that's how they view authority. So when they want authority, that's how they will act. So we have to teach people how to act so that we can teach the kids how to act. And when you see abuse happening in your home, especially as a child, it's normal. That's the thing you look for. So if one of your parents is verbally or psychologically abusive to another parent, that is teaching the child that that is the normal behavior and that that is okay. That is how you talk to somebody that you love. And that is how you perceive love. If you're not getting that from a partner, they don't really love you because that's how you view it. And so we're teaching a lot of people the wrong way to express love. And I think that's really the root of the problem. Absolutely. I feel like it's definitely gotten more negative over the years, too. I feel like it's so much worse nowadays. I kind of feel like with the introduction of social media, we can say whatever we want to. And, you know, we're hiding behind a screen and nobody can see our face. We can say whatever we want. And maybe you didn't feel empowered at one point in your life. And now this having this anonymous voice makes you feel empowered. But instead of, you know, empowered to just speak your mind in a respectful manner, you're just going to say whatever you want to say. And I feel like that has actually bled out into our everyday society, face to face society as well. Now we can say whatever we want to whomever we want. And that's my right. And that's my privilege. And that's my whatever. And I deserve to be able to do that. Absolutely. And I think that validation bias plays a huge role in that too. People will search for people who agree with them. And so places like Facebook are like a hunting ground for people because if one person, I'm going to make up a terrible conspiracy theory, but like all blankets are actually made from, I don't know, dogs. Okay. Like the dumbest thing you've ever seen or heard. If I were to say that and somebody believed it, now I'm validated in my belief. And the two of us are going to go around and say it and we're going to find more people to validate us. And so bad behavior and bad thoughts and negative reactions are absolutely reinforced, especially on social media, because you really can't escape it anymore. Bullying used to be just in school and then you'd go home to your family and you'd, you know, la-di-da all day. You'd go play with your friends and eat junk food and watch TV. Now they're bullied in school and then they come home and they're continued to be bullied because everybody has access to them all night. You know, the access to people, it's endless. And I think that we absolutely see that in our society all over the place today. And, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about we aren't harsh enough with our children. And, you know, I feel like that puts our kids in a really, really, really tough place. And I think that you can build emotional resilience without having to be abusive about it. I think that I just feel like our emotional intelligence as a society is not very high, unfortunately. And I think if we could just figure that out, that it's like you can actually build and make your child so strong and so resilient and so able to get through anything without having to 
beat it into them or be emotionally abusive with them or anything along those lines, they don't have to go hand in hand. I 100% agree. There's no data to show, although I wish there was, that being aggressive and abrasive and abusive towards your kids actually doesn't build strong resilient kids. It builds people who are shells, who are pushovers, and people who react in negative ways, right? So people who are more likely to engage in risky behaviors are kids that come from homes that are abusive. Why? Because you haven't built their confidence up. There's definitely something to be said about being proactive and having these conversations while simultaneously building people up. I hate very much when people are like, oh, well, you know, participation trophies and blah, blah, blah. You don't need to reward somebody for every good thing they do or everything they've tried, but you also don't need to break them down when they fail, right? It doesn't need to be, you know, well, you lost, so you don't get anything, loser. You know, oh, only winners get ice cream with sprinkles. You know, dumb stuff like that. It doesn't need to be one or the other. It can be a middle ground. They can still have tried hard and done well, even if they didn't succeed. And so, like you said, being abusive and emotionally abusive to children to try and break them like a horse. Our brains are so much more complex than a horse's brain. And so you can't whip us into shape. You can't whip people into shape. You teach people what to accept and you teach people what is allowed. And especially with children. Yeah. So now tell me about what one-on-one healing coaching looks like with you. Sure. So the way that I like to coach people is basically on your level, right? Everybody has a different path. Everybody has different interests. Everyone has a different journey. And so first we address the things in your life that you want to feel, right? Because if you don't know what you want, then we can't get it. If you have no idea what your life or your ideal life looks like, I can't help you find it. So first we identify your ideal life And then we identify the resources that you have used that have worked and have not worked. And we basically build a plan. We chat every other week, see where you're at, kind of gauge what you're feeling and what's popping up and what, you know, isn't such an issue anymore. And we work through those issues one by one together. So you're not alone. I'm holding your hand and guiding you through the whole thing because after abuse, we feel so alone, right? Somebody did something horrible to us and brought us to where we are. And then we're just kind of left on this island to fend for ourselves. And that's not okay. You didn't get to where you are alone, so you shouldn't have to dig your way out of it alone. So I'm there to help you, to guide you through it so that you know that you have somebody to depend on who's been where you are or who understands. And we work through your issues one by one using these proven activities and exercises and teaching you coping skills and mechanisms to get yourself to be your baseline when you need to. You know, everybody who's experienced abuse has bad days, right? So you could be feeling on top of the world one day and the next day you wake up and you're like, I just feel like gum on someone's shoe and I just don't want to do anything and lay in bed all day. And I'm here to tell you that's okay because having a bad day is a big part of the healing process and we'll get through it together. And I do think especially kids that that message is important to tell them because I think people assume that once you start healing, you get to this point and then you should be okay after that. And I, and I, again, I feel like it's another thing that we just don't talk about and we don't give enough grace of like, 
no, it's okay. It's okay that you have this bad day today that, you know, even though nothing changed, nothing new is happening. It's okay if today is just a day that you can't handle. And I, and I just don't think that we allow for that enough. I saw this interesting meme yesterday. It's called internalized capitalism. And there's six bullet points to what internalized capitalism looks like. And it's feeling guilty for resting, um, that your self-worth is largely based on how well you're doing, placing productivity before health. And so things like this, believing that hard work equals happiness. So things like that really stop us from progress because we spend the day that we need to be resting beating ourselves up for not being better. And that's not okay, right? So we have to give ourselves permission. And sometimes you just need to hear it from somebody else. And sometimes I still need to hear it from somebody else to give yourself permission to take that day, eat as much junk food as you can without throwing up and watch TV, like watch Gossip Girl or like trashy reality TV because you need it and that's okay. And so I'm here today, right now, to give you permission to take a day off when you need to and do nothing but eat junk food, like as much ice cream as you can consume and watch a TV show that you don't feel comfortable telling people you enjoy because it's a guilty pleasure. I agree. And not only that, I feel like that's an important lesson, not just for us to help teach our children, but for us to especially learn for ourselves. For parents who are taking care of children that were sexually abused or abused in any other form, It can be a rough, rough road. And there can be days that our children are not doing well that makes us not do well. There can be days where maybe our children have been doing fine and we're just expecting the other shoe to drop. Or we had something happen to us that made, you know, it a little bit more difficult to also take care of our children. And I think that we have to recognize that if we can't give them our all, then that's not beneficial to any of us. We need to take that step back and say, okay, today is a day just for me. And we're allowed to do that. Vicarious trauma is very, very real. Hearing about other people's experiences can be just as traumatizing as going through them yourself, especially when it's your child. You have emotions connected to these people. And when you hear the horrible things that they've endured, you feel it. And I know for my mom, when I told her what had happened to me, she was devastated and she cried for a while and said, I wish I, you know, I wish I did something different. I wish I did something that night and came and got you, but it wouldn't have made a difference, right? To me, it would not have made a difference, but it made a difference to her to feel that helpless. It it was awful. And so, Being able to take a step back and take care of yourself and know that vicarious trauma is real and that you're not just being, I don't know, dramatic or that's so important because you can't feed somebody from an empty bowl. You can't take care of somebody if you're not well yourself. And I also think that there's this thing of like making it about you. We're not making it about us. We're not. We can hurt for our children. And I think that when you as a parent hurt for your children, it's a unique experience. You know, it's different. And I think that, you know, like you said, vicarious trauma, you aren't making it about you. You're not taking away the pain and the suffering that your children had. But you have to at some point recognize that that severely impacted you as well. And, you know, what I've read is that it's not uncommon for parents of sexually abused children to actually have PTSD because of 
the trauma that their children went through because they're taking care of their children and and recognizing what their children went through and you know being there as a parent and it can absolutely create symptoms of PTSD in a parent themselves. A hundred percent. You feel for your kids so strongly and there's a definite guilt and shame involved in feeling like you couldn't protect them or you didn't protect them. But that's not the truth, right? You are doing everything you can. And even if you caught it at the end of it or in the aftermath, you're doing something now that is an incredible help to your child. Just know that you have to take care of yourself too. So tell me, Marissa, how can people find you? Awesome. So feel free to jump on my website. It is marissafaycohen.com. That's Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-S-A-F-A-Y-E-C-O-H-E-N.com. On it, I actually have a free ebook right now, and you can feel free to sign up for it. It is called The Three Signs of a Toxic Relationship. And it highlights the different... we, We kind of covered a couple of them before, but three major signs of what a toxic partner or narcissist will do to keep you in their clutches. So that doesn't really apply to children too, too much, more so adults, but that's free and available on there. You can find me on Facebook at Marissa F. Cohen and Twitter and Instagram are the same, I believe. And if you'd like to email me and reach out personally, I have a uh, calendar available. It's schedulealcallwithmarissa.com. And it'll take you right to my schedule. And I would love to do a free consultation, a free call to talk to anybody who is a parent of a child who's been abused or to work with your child. I can get on the phone with your child as well. Schedulealcallwithmarissa.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yes. No, I've really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it, folks. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Through the Undertow. We hope you'll take a moment to visit our website at www.throughtheundertow.com. That's www.throughtheundertow.com. While you're there, Join our mailing list for updates on new episodes coming and some of the new things we'll be adding in the future. There's also a page to donate. It is through the generous support of our donors that we're able to continue to bring you content. Until next time, don't forget to take a moment to breathe. No, you're not alone, and we're here to help you aid through the undertone.